Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Yesterday I was reading a book and it was nearly time to close it and get going with other things. I was approaching the climax of the story. You know, the point where they carry out the plan that they've been talking about for several chapters and they're either going to succeed and all will be well or they'll fail and be dead. I had a choice. I could keep reading and finish the book, but run the risk of being interrupted in the middle of the big scene to do one of the other things on my to-do list. Um, or, or I could stop reading and save that chapter until another time in the day when all the things are done. And I know I will be able to sit there and read without being interrupted. I will not keep you in suspense. I chose the latter. It's a classic example of delayed gratification, and it's worth it. So I can sit down and I have my cup of coffee or my glass of wine or whatever, and I can put my feet up and know that I'm just going to be able to sit here and read this book and enjoy it as much as it's possible. Does anybody else do that? Or is it just another kooky me thing? And now I will keep you no longer from finding out how Kier handles all the information she got from Soren and how she's going to pass that on to the rest of the gang. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 17 Especially When They're Lying Kier burst through the door of the inn. Five heads turned simultaneously to watch her. Fennel's spoon didn't stop scraping up the second-to-last bite of porridge, which had been served with some kind of berries. Janik licked his fingers as he shoved the last corner of toast into his mouth. As she casually approached the table, she calmed her breathing and smelled the salty aroma of sausage. Adjusting her scabbard, she appraised the mood of the company. Jeskelin, a notoriously slow eater, had only half an egg left on his plate. Skimnoddle had a nearly full plate, which he was scarfing as if he hadn't eaten in weeks. Probably seconds. Derry played with the handle on his teacup. She pulled out the nearest chair and sat between Skimnoddle and Jeskelin. Wow, and it isn't even midday yet, Janik muttered, apparently in response to something she'd missed. She looked levelly across the table at the captain. Be sure to hang on to that rigid stare, Derry. I wouldn't want your finely chiseled features to lose any of their sharpness. Derry's body swelled perceptibly, but he said nothing, instead tearing his eyes away from her and taking a large sip of tea. He finally spoke with deliberate control. Sarcasm does not become you. Oh, come on, Derry, of course it does, she said. This is me, remember? She grinned around at the group, most of whom were inclined to agree with her. Look, I'm sorry I'm late, okay? Does that make you feel better? Much, Derry said. She sat back in her chair and opened her hands to the ceiling. Honestly, you make it difficult for me to feel at all remorseful. I come in here and you're already hostile, without even knowing where I've been and why I'm late. It's as if you don't think there can possibly be a good reason and you've made up your mind to be angry. I might have been attacked or something. You? Attacked? Janik said. Oh, Skimnoddle snorted. Can't imagine you getting into a fight. With your sweet temper, Janik said. Kier smiled at them appreciatively, but Fennel looked at Derry anxiously. 
She turned to the captain again. Really, Derry, this accusatory stance is unbecoming of you. The captain shot her a look that seemed an effort to send her to the fires of hell. She blinked at him and watched him regain control of himself. I apologize, he said slowly through a very tight jaw. Accepted, she said with sincerity, then winked at Fennel directly across from her. Now, first things first, Skimnoddle, how did it go for you? Derry frowned, looking resentful that she'd taken charge. "'My lady, I humbly beg leave to express withholding any tones that may be misconstrued as arrogance or self-satisfaction, character traits which I am sure you, dear heart, would not tolerate in a partner, and by the heavens I am dedicated to the continuance of my suit for your affections.' "'Oh, knock it off. Did you get it or not?' she said. "'I did.' He bowed at her resulting grin. Pulling out the bottle, he opened it, and Kier confirmed that it was Talima. The innkeeper arrived then to collect the rest of the empty dishes, and she ordered some sausage and toast. Her feet bounced on her toes as if she were jittery. She quickly quelled it. She'd noticed a strange restlessness in all her limbs, similar to light-headedness. The kawa was tasty, but it had a weird effect. Derry looked peeved as if he had come to some sort of conclusion. Why could he not just ask her straight out where she'd been? He assumed that she'd been up to no good, and her cheeks stung with resentment. Not only that, she had to find a way to impart the news about the rune pattern without giving Soren away. "'How was your evening, Kier?' Fennel asked cheerfully. "'Fascinating.' This was not a lie." "'Young Todd make for good company, then?' Janik said with a nudge at Skim Noddle, who smirked. She just smiled, letting them interpret that as they may, and turned back to Derry. "'So we told them who I left with, huh? Nice guy. "'But perhaps that would be the best way to avoid mentioning Sorin. "'She recalled the sight of the handsome captain leaving the party with an adoring girl on his arm. "'How was your evening, Derry?' she said softly. "'The peevishness had returned, too, which accounted for her ill behavior. Derry brought out the worst in her just with his attitude. "'Not nearly as interesting as yours, it would seem,' came the reply. "'I don't know. You appeared to have been attracting more than your fair share of attention,' she remarked. "'I was dancing,' he clarified. "'I walked a young lady home and returned here.' Jeskellen turned to Kier as the innkeeper set a plate of food before her. "'You did not return to the inn?' he asked rhetorically. There really wasn't a point, she said. Not much left to the night by the time we were through what we were doing. Again, leaving things open to interpretation. I'm not lying. I'm just omitting certain truths. Derry poured himself some more tea. Now perhaps we can begin the discussion we ought to have started some time ago. The captain looked purposefully away from Kier and toward Janik and Fennel. With our deepest thanks to Skimnoddle, we have achieved what we came here to do. So where do we go from here? Which is the best route to the Indian Caves? We can't go straight there, Kier blurted through a mouthful of sausage before anyone else could speak. Derry turned to her with some annoyance. What are you talking about? he said impatiently. Kier reached for her cup of water and her hand shook. What is the matter, Kier? Jeskellen said. I'm all right. She took a long draught. I had a hot drink called Kawa this morning. I think that's all this is. Kawa? Jeskellen said. Does that not come from Hamara? How did your young host come by it? He asked with somewhat exaggerated curiosity that irritated Kier. Why were these two reacting like this? Was lateness such a heinous crime? A haughty tone crept into her voice. He is a very worldly man, as it turns out. Soren was my host, after all. 
Very well, then. Derry was trying to regain control of the discussion. What were you going to say, Kier, about the caves? She swallowed her bite before speaking this time and checked around their table for unwanted attention. In a low voice, she said, Only that I was told we need a certain key to gain entry to the caves. The doors are essentially locked, and without the key, we won't get in. What sort of key? What does it look like? Jaskelin asked. It's a pattern of runes on a stone. I was told it might be in the possession of a Colonel Greenberg at the army garrison stationed about two days southeast of here. Who told you? Skimnoddle said. Lightning strike me through the heart if I should ever hold your words in any doubt, fairest lady, but for the good of our responsibility to our mission, I ask if the source is a reliable one. Any loss of time could, as you well know, prove disastrous. Yes, and we've already lost time along the way because of interruptions. She let Derry's insinuation bypass her. She had only then realized her mistake. She should not have said she was told anything. If whomever Soren feared learned that there was someone in Seaview who knew about the rune pattern, regardless of whether she revealed his identity, Soren would be tracked down. She had vowed to not expose his existence. Thinking quickly, she said, I had another dream last night. Silence. Would they believe her? It was not so unlikely a story. How does this key work? Janik said. Doesn't sound like a regular key. Kier caught her breath. Shit, he never told me. She hoped her sudden attack of panic wasn't plastered all over her face. He had probably meant to tell her, but got sidetracked when he learned she knew Valraker. Now it was too late. Maybe, she faltered, maybe it'll be clear when we get there, like the other things have been. Could she sneak back to his house? Derry shifted in his chair. Well, that settles it, he said. We go southeast, and to make up for the delay, we had better leave as soon as we are able. There's one further question, Janik piped in with a grimace at Kier. And that is, said Derry. Why were you late this morning, Kier? Todd keeping you busy? He was grinning wickedly, but certain others at the table clearly wanted the answer. Kier hesitated. On the one hand, it pleased her to be asked a straight question. On the other, she hadn't managed to come up with an answer that wouldn't give Soren away. Finally, she decided to brave the worst and take the blow herself. With a shrug, she adopted a look of guilty embarrassment and said, Yep, that's pretty much it, if you must know every detail of my private life. Todd was, well, he's young and, uh, you know, insatiable. She gave Derry a wink and said coyly, Sorry to have kept you all waiting. Better that Derry be angry with her than she break her vow to Soren. Suddenly Todd came rushing into the room, breathless and red-faced. He found her among the patrons and hastened over. She leapt to her feet. I'm so glad you haven't left yet, he said. She glared a warning at him. Don't ruin anything. Her companions eyed the situation with keen interest, and Kier felt heat rush from her neck to her scalp. I have one more thing to say to you before you go. Todd lifted his chin proudly. Wait, Kier grabbed his arm. Let's take this outside, shall we? She guided him out the door. I've been muffing my way through keeping my visit with your grandfather a secret. He nodded. Granda will appreciate it, I guess. But he forgot to tell you this, he said. All right. Todd recited. Breathtaking to behold, vision alone will win your day. I touch you only with my eyes. Red light will point your way. What's that supposed to mean? He shrugged. He didn't tell me. He said you'd understand. Great, she said to herself. Riddles. Thanks for telling me. 
With a short bow, he was about to leave. Wait, Kier put a hand on his arm. Do me a favor. Hug me. The boy looked puzzled, but nodded. He reached out and they put their arms around each other. She kissed him on the cheek. He left hurriedly. She lingered just a moment before heading back through the door, where her friends were, as she predicted, watching her through the window. She strode to the table. What? she demanded. Well, that's true love, all right, Janik snorted, and she grinned, more from relief than anything. Meeting Fennel's eye, Kier was startled by the look on his face. The captain's ice-cold glare she ignored as she turned and left the dining room. Kier was a colorful blend of emotions as she retrieved her things, relieved that she'd covered her slip-up, relieved that Todd hadn't said anything to expose Soren, but terrifically confused about Todd's words. Something to do with the key? A dismayingly cryptic message. Oh, well, she had two days to figure it out. She was also confused about Derry. Derry was angry, but there was nothing she could do about it. Upon learning he had spent the evening alone, she'd been flooded with a bizarre relief, and yet, having felt the sting of the captain's remarks this morning, she was glad she hadn't made a fool of herself by asking him to teach her to dance. "'Todd, my grandson,' said Soren Lowy that evening as the two settled into their armchairs to have their tea. The gift from the young warrior lay across his lap, and he stroked the carved sheath thoughtfully. "'Yes, Granda?' It's time I went on a trip. A trip, Granda? Yes, to see an old friend to whom a visit is long overdue. I think it's time, now that I know where to find him. I will leave day after tomorrow. All right. Look after your ma'am and sister and the collection. Of course. I am anxious to see his reaction when I show him his sword, the old man chuckled softly to himself. The journey over rolling grasslands might have been pleasant on a warm day. The sun that had blinded Kier as she awakened in Soren Lowy's front room had been eclipsed by savage, coal-gray clouds. A chill wind off the sea ushered the party out of town, and as if to make it clear they should be on their way, the saturated clouds began to purge themselves. Within an hour of their departure, the travelers were equally saturated, and there was no sign of those ominous vessels being depleted. The lanolin in their wool cloaks did much to withhold the moisture, but the liquid won in the end, coming as it did from all sides, splashing up from the ground, off horses' hoofs, running down manes, streaming on leather equipment. I'm reminded of the last time we left Wanaka, Janik shouted above the drops, pounding against the hard ground. Kier had to turn her entire upper body to look at him from within her hood. You're just lucky you didn't have to fight four people in the dark in this kind of rain like Derry and I did, hey, Derry? Derry turned similarly to see her, though he merely grunted. Boy, is he ever in a mood. Kier scowled. She nudged Trigg in the sides, and together they trotted up to see over the next rise. At the crest, a dark shape darted across the path, and Trigg was startled by a shriek and a hiss. He stopped suddenly, throwing Kier over his neck. She landed with a thud on the wet ground and half slid, half rolled down the slope. The badger flattened itself out, hissed again at Trigg, who, to Kier's relief, had remained at the top of the hillock unharmed. The badger scampered off to its den in the hillside. Kier, Fennel called, are you all right? Kier checked herself over before struggling to her feet in the muck. Just some bruises, I think, she replied, shaking out her wet cloak. The others led their horses around the side to a less steep slope. Derry did not dismount, but asked in his best physicker's tone, Okay, then? She nodded. 
nothing worse than a little mortification. You were lucky, he remarked, and moved on. Kier double-checked Trigg's legs to make sure he had suffered no damage. She mounted and followed the group, missing the days in the not-so-recent past when Derry would have been concerned about her. Fennel was puzzled about a few things as he held Layout to a trot behind Skimnoddle's pony. He sensed the tension in the party as well as anybody else. Jeskellen, preoccupied about something, was even quieter than usual, and his eye had honed in on Kier off and on all morning. The sparks between Kier and Derry were about as subtle as fireworks, and the rain hadn't snuffed them. It was a relationship Fennel was having a hard time figuring out. It was tricky to look at it objectively, though. Fennel was fond of Kier and not so fond of Derry. That lack of fondness was reciprocal, Fennel knew well. Derry tolerated him, and Fennel did his best to avoid aggravating the proud captain whose expectations were so high, but it seemed the more he tried to perform to Derry's exacting standards, the worse things became, and the elf was aware of every impatient glance and suppressed sigh of frustration precipitated by him. However, between Kier and Derry, things were decidedly different. On one hand, the captain seemed to lose patience with Kier more quickly than with anyone else in the party, yet on the other hand, Fennel observed that Derry put up with a whole lot more nonsense from Kier than he did from anyone else. Nobody minded, nor even seemed to notice but him, but the elf knew that he himself would never have gotten away with berating the captain so boldly, especially in front of the rest of the group. Fennel couldn't fathom what was going on there, but he had a foreboding feeling that something would ignite soon. As for Kier herself, there were some inconsistencies in her story this morning which didn't make sense to him. He could not imagine that Kier would outright lie, but the elf could see no other explanation. First of all, she had been more than an hour and a half late, entirely unlike her. Even if she had been occupied with Todd, Fennel could not bring himself to believe that she would be so enraptured with the youth that she'd disregard a meeting such as that. For her to be late, she had to have been doing something of much greater import than she had admitted to, and he had no clue what it could be or why she would not reveal it. Derry hadn't noticed this inconsistency with her character, hadn't noticed or had chosen to ignore. Secondly, Fennel and Derry had arrived early for breakfast. Clearly, Derry had forgotten, but Todd had come into the happy beer barrel with a note for the innkeeper shortly after they'd ordered their tea. The lad had even waved to them, too out of breath from dashing through the streets to speak. So how could he and Kier have been... No, she was definitely not truthful about what had kept her this morning. Someone worldly who had given her kawa and held her attention with something of great importance for an hour and a half. The third thing was what happened at breakfast. Even if Kier and Todd had spent all that time together, which Fennel didn't believe, why would Kier's face have flooded with fear when the youth came through the door? Puzzling. And the strangest thing of all was the absence of a particular item that normally hung at her left side. He decided to say nothing about it for now. He'd only be told off. "'In a hollow we'll drown,' said Fennel. "'On a high point we'll be seen far and wide,' argued Jeskellen. "'If we're that visible, then whoever wants to see us has been watching us all day,' Derry said, his tone far drier than the land, and it was agreed. They set up a dismal little camp on top of a roll in the grassy sea.' 
Everything from the ground up was drenched. The very air presented a danger of drowning. There would be no fire here, not even a conjured one. The rain had alternated between heavy and downpour throughout the day, and had at no point relented. The sleeping quarters, with no trees around to fashion tent poles for the tent cloth, were a choice of wet or sopping. Kier chose the latter, leaving the more choice spots for the others in an effort to make amends for being late for breakfast. Supper was whatever cold bits they had in their saddlebags. Seated on her bedroll in the relative shelter provided by Trigg, Kier puzzled over what she could have done to get Derry so riled up. For the life of her, she could think of nothing. Yeah, she was late for breakfast, but she arrived with important news. He might still be thinking of her having gone in the wrong direction after the incident with Frederick, but she thought it had been explained well enough. Going to get the sword? Surely he wouldn't be so bothered by that. Of course, her initial screw-up in Plicatha was what started it all, but still, she did not understand his behavior. Perhaps she ought to ask him straight out, Why are you being so moody with me? No, that would just put him on the defensive. Is there something you'd like to tell me or ask me? Closer, but she'd probably louse up the delivery and sound all accusatory and he'd get defensive again. There's something very wrong with our communication. She gave it up. It would come out sometime. These things always did, though admittedly it was never pleasant. Well, I sure know that Jaskelin doesn't much care for slugs, particularly giant ones, Fennel was saying, but for myself I'd have to say it has to be making a mistake that turns out to be fatal. He glanced at Kier as he said this, and since she was clearly supposed to understand what he meant, she gave him a knowing smile and struggled to guess the topic of their conversation. My biggest fear in all this is finding everything we need but arriving at Barthelon Castle a day too late. Derry said, and this time his remark did not seem to be aimed at Kier. She risked a response. That won't happen. We have to keep believing that. He said nothing more. What about wolves? Janik said. The chilling howl of wolves at night has always given me shivers. Kier had to admire his honesty. Not I, Jaskelin said. You might say I have an affinity with wolves. Ah, of course, Janik said, as if the two of them shared a secret. For me, Skimnoddle announced, I fear no other than being spurned by my deepest love. Kier groaned. You live that every day of your life. Crushed! Oh, I am slain virtually! The halfling tipped over on his blanket. I've never been keen on ticks, Fennel put in. My mother used to faint if she saw a frog, said Kier. Grizzlies, Derry said sensibly. Snakes, Janik said. The snake is a symbol of undying love, Kier said. She couldn't have ended the conversation more abruptly if she'd whipped out her sword and sliced someone's head off. Jaskelin leapt to his feet, staring at her, the whites of his eyes bright in the dusk. The wind swooping around them drew their attention to the fact that the rain had finally stopped. The ensuing silence quivered. "'What did you say?' the mage asked, looking at her as if she'd called his mother a whore. Puzzlement and disbelief rushing through her, Kier waited for something to hit her in the dark. The snake, it's, apparently, a symbol of undying love. You know, the snake holds its tail in its teeth, making a perfect circle. When nothing struck her, she carried on. I heard it somewhere. What's it to you? All eyes were on Jaskelin, for a change, Kier thought, and he gathered his robes into his arms and shook out the dampness. In the dark it was hard to tell, but Kier thought he might be doing so to make it seem as if that was why he'd jumped up. Um. It's an intra 
interesting concept, he said. Surprising. In my experience, the snake has always been associated with evil. I'm going to give it some thought. He whirled around and walked off, leaving the rest of them to wonder what had startled him. Kierre wished she hadn't said anything. Late afternoon on the third day since leaving Seaview, the hills rolled them within view of the northwest encampment of the Realm Guard. It was laid out in a neat quadrilateral pattern with a defensive ditch surrounding the perimeter. There were mostly tents, some large, some small, and a few more permanent structures. A couple of hundred head of cavalry were housed in the northeast corner, and just outside the western gate a grid of tiny white posts indicated a graveyard. Kier's inexpert guess was that the camp housed several hundred soldiers. She doubted there could be as many as a thousand. Now that they were here, Kier was starting to worry about Soren's message. She was no nearer to solving the riddle, and could only hope that seeing the key would bring something to mind. As they approached the encampment, they discussed their arrival. "'Let us storm them!' Skimnoddle said dramatically. "'You know, I'm certain you just say stuff to get a reaction,' Kier said. "'We will simply ride in and ask to meet with the commanding officer,' Derry said. "'This is a peaceful mission, and I can think of no reason why they would deny us what we ask, so there is no need for aggression on our part.' "'Actually, Derry,' Kier said softly, "'the key is somewhat of a secret. He may very well deny us. Maybe I should do the talking, since I know what we're looking for?' He didn't meet her eye as he replied, "'No, thank you. I know how to employ the necessary diplomacy.' Kier clamped her teeth shut. Stubborn fool. They rode their mounts slowly down the hill, with Jaskelin walking swiftly alongside Janik. Flags bearing the guarded realm insignia fluttered noncommittally from poles on either side of the entrance to the compound. Sentries bustled to position, having seen the approaching riders. Kier surmised that visitors here in the bleak north must be few and far between. When they were about twenty paces away, they dismounted and approached on foot. A guard hailed the party. "'Who comes?' "'We are emissaries from the Dukes Kian Barthelon and Valraker of Eckert. On a mission of the utmost importance, we would speak to your commanding officer,' Derry said in a polite yet authoritative voice. The sentry gestured to a soldier who departed down the main aisle of tents at a fast walk. They waited patiently for several minutes while the message was sent to its recipient. When the soldier returned, he spoke in a low voice to the sentry. The sentry addressed Derry again. "'Major Gilvray will see you.' "'Gilvray?' Kier thought with a small measure of concern. "'What about Greenberg?' The sentry turned to another guard. "'Please take our guests' mounts and stable them.' "'Perhaps it would be wiser to leave our horses here at the gate,' Derry suggested. "'Our errand is but short, and we do not intend to tarry.' The guard gestured for them to follow him. Four more of the guards fell in step behind Kier and Fennel. They were led through the makeshift gateway and down the path through the centre of the camp. Large tents flanked the path with a series of smaller tents erected around and behind these. Some of the tents had been replaced with thatch-roofed huts in an effort to give an air of permanence and comfort. Mud had overtaken the grass in the duration of the garrison's sojourn in this location, though it was still lush around the tents where traffic was infrequent. The mud, refreshed by the recent downpours, squelched under Kier's boots, and she wondered, not for the first time, how Jaskelin could stand going constantly barefoot. A long, low hut skulked in roughly the centre of the encampment, with a well directly outside. The kitchen, Kier guessed. 
The guarded realm colors peeked out frequently from among the huts, brightening the dingy green and brown of the structures. They must do all they can to keep cheerful. Just beyond the dining hut, the party made an abrupt turn to the left and passed a few more of the smaller tents before stopping in front of a small log cabin. The banner of the guarded realm hung limply from the roof, its silver tree dulled to a moody grey on a faded green field. Another hint of the duration of the army's posting. A polished brass bell hung on a hook just beside the wooden door. Their escort knocked, opened the door, and entered. "'The emissaries from the south, sir!' He held the door open for the guests to pass through. They followed Derry into the cabin. The four extra guards waited outside. The ceiling was high enough for even Derry and Fennel to stand upright. Oiled sheepskin on the windows of the cabin dimmed the light, but her eyes adjusted quickly as Kier positioned herself on the left end of her group. Before them, in the left corner, was a table that doubled as a desk, littered with sheets of parchment, quills and ink, penknife, and a stack of mail awaiting attention. Rising and coming around from behind the desk was a man, human, a few years beyond forty, with jagged, graying dark hair and his hand extended. His beard was neat and peppered with a few grey whiskers. His high black infantry boots made little sound as he stepped across the thickly woven straw mats that gave the illusion of a floor. I am Major Ryerson Gilvray. Welcome. He spoke with the lilting accent of the northern region, a little shorter than Derry, but of larger build with an oblong face that was friendly yet weather-worn and hardened by his cause to defend the north. A chain-mail coat hung out from below his dark green sleeveless tabard emblazoned with the tree of life. A dagger poked out of its sheath next to a fist-sized flat pouch at his waist. His left side held his sword, its leather-covered hilt looking as if it had recently been freshly restored. A man who cared about his weapon, then, and took the time to maintain its condition in spite of his somewhat isolated posting. Kier pictured him donning his weapon belt in honor of their arrival. His eyes were dark and curious, but he was smiling as if glad for the novelty of visitors from the southern, civilized regions. Derry shook his hand, introducing himself, then stated the names of the other five. The officer shook each hand, scrutinizing each face. Kier guessed that in spite of his friendly appearance, this was not a man who would be an easy target of duplicity. When Derry announced her name, Major Gilvray seemed startled as he took her hand. "'Well, I must apologize,' he said in surprise. "'I did not notice until now that you are a woman.' Studying him, Kier saw something more a kind of hunger. How long had he been posted up here? Retrieving her hand, she said, No apology necessary. I'm a fighter like any other and need no special consideration. He bowed. Well met, all the same. His eyes rested on her a moment longer before he moved to his desk. Shifting his quills and ink bottle, he made room to lean on the front of it next to what looked to Kier like a picture frame. With its back to her, she could not see whose portrait it displayed. Derry's emotionless gaze was on Kier, and he shifted his feet. She looked at him blankly. It's not my fault. Major Gilvray waved away the two guards before he spoke again. I have not enough chairs to offer one to each of you. Please accept my apologies for what appears to be a lack of hospitality. There wasn't even enough room for more chairs, one behind the desk, one right in front of her. Army cot with tick mattress in the far corner, chest, wardrobe, brazier with dead coals. Washstand between bed and desk. At least the army gave him nice curtains. Derry waved his hand. I'm sure you rarely receive visitors. 
True enough, most people don't venture into such lands as these, and usually our guests are military men or councilmen, not nearly as colorful as your party. His face was glued to Derry's with such a look of concentration that Kier got the feeling he was fighting to avoid passing another glance over the guests, herself included. "'We have been directed to speak to Colonel Greenberg,' Derry said. "'Is he here?' "'Colonel Greenberg has been away these five weeks,' Gilvray replied. "'Oh, no!' Kier chewed on the inside of her cheek. Gilvray continued, "'He is travelling to meet with other commanding officers for a war council.' I am commander here in his stead. I hope I might be able to help you. Kier watched the major's face closely as Derry outlined the circumstances of Alon's illness, fulfilling his promise of diplomacy. Gilvray listened attentively. One of the ingredients we need for the antidote, Derry said, is a dust that we are told can be found in the ancient Indian caves. At this, the major's brows lifted slightly. Our sources, Derry went on, tell us that we cannot simply enter the caves. We require a certain key. It is a pity Colonel Greenberg is not here, as we were given to believe he might be in possession of it. Of course, as his second-in-command, you must know of it. Please will you allow us its use for a short time, so we may obtain the ingredient necessary to save Alon Mare's life. A strange frown flitted over the officer's face, gravity edged with what Kier perceived to be a hint of uncertainty in his creased brow. He drummed his fingers lightly on the table. I must tell you that I am perplexed. I have heard of these caves, but only in myth and legend, or so I thought. I have certainly never seen them. Who is this source who told you of their existence with such certainty? The wizard Kami gave us the recipe for the antidote, and we have no reason to doubt his knowledge, Derry said. Yes, I suppose so, the major continued, folding his arms on his chest. But if he is right, and I say if, there must be considerable magic empowered in them. I would be apprehensive to even seek them out, would not you? We know of the potential danger, major, and I beg of you not to be concerned on our account. Derry assured him. Our greater fear lies in the consequence of our not securing the substance we require— his tone was a strong reminder of their urgency. What of the key? The major shifted his position. You are braver folk than I, he said with a smile. Yet I regret that I cannot help you. Someone has told you that I have possession of this key, but sadly your source has misled you. I know of no such item. Kier had to enter the conversation. It's not something you would recognize as a key, she told him. It's a stone disk covered with runes in a complex pattern. "'Are you sure this doesn't sound familiar?' she observed his reaction intently. Fennel snatched Gilvray's attention before he was forced to respond. "'What about Colonel Greenberg?' the elf put in hopefully. "'Does he know of the runes?' "'No more than I, good elf,' was the response. "'I possess the same knowledge as does my commander, "'or else how could I possibly hope to be an effective leader while he is absent?' My duty is to protect the North from the forces of Dregor, and regrettably that does not involve the pastime of exploring mythological sites. I am not an archaeologist, he chuckled. Kier frowned. The others shifted uneasily in the confused silence. Derry couldn't have made it plainer that this was the only way to save Alon Mare's life, so if he knew of the runes, surely he would say so. He seems awfully keen to deny the cave's existence. "'Has the colonel never mentioned the key to you?' Kier asked cautiously. "'He would have acquired it a few years ago.' Derry peered at her. "'Kian and Valraker are your allies,' Janik reminded him. "'What about supporting the other duchies that cover the lines to the south?' 
Kean and Valraker do a fine job, good dwarf, Major Gilvray said sternly. However, my first responsibility is not to them, but to the Tree of Life and the Inden Hills. Why protect the Inden Hills so vigilantly if the caves don't exist, Kier muttered. The Major shot a startled look her way, but recovered quickly. She felt the chill of Derry's frozen glare without even glancing at him. I am the commander of five hundred men, young lady, Gilvray replied. We have been in this vicinity for five years, fighting armies of orcs and madmen who are commanded by the maddest of them all. I hardly am under obligation to justify myself to you. Clanging swords from a battle practice some distance away reverberated through the camp. Gilvray broke the stillness. My friends, this is getting you nowhere. My thoughts and best wishes go with you for the lady's recovery, but I am sadly unable to produce the item you're looking for. I am no alchemist, or I'd produce something from nothing. Derry was nothing if not a diplomat. We are warriors, Major, all too familiar with the type of work you are doing here in the North, and we thank you for your continued efforts to thwart enemy forces. His soft voice was filled with emotion. Kier felt his sorrow at their failure and what it would mean for his lord's best friends. We will trouble you no further on this matter. I only hope that we are able to find another source of the ingredient we need to complete the mixture. There are two lives at stake, and one of them is the only heir to Kian's throne. He bowed and turned to leave the cabin. The others followed him, but Major Gilvray put his hand on Kier's arm as she turned. She stopped and glared at him. He flinched. "'Dear lady, I sincerely regret that I cannot help you,' he said. "'I am sorry.' Kier's voice was like the chilly rain of yesterday. I don't know why you're apologizing to me. I'm not Kian Barthelon, nor am I his dying wife. Still, he hesitated before completing the thought, I wish we might have met under alternate circumstances. With a curt nod, she exited. Her friends awaited her with sober faces. The major followed her out. My friends, it approaches evening. Please set up your camp for the night near to ours and feel free to avail yourselves of our food and water and anything else we can provide you. Derry bowed and thanked him, accepting the gesture. Returning to their horses, the party rode a short distance south of the encampment to set up their own camp for the night. Only when they were safely separated from the soldiers did they comment on the meeting. Well, Derry, we did the best we could, Fennel said tentatively as he wiped down Layout's coat. I mean, you were polite and said everything that had to be said and didn't get angry or anything. You didn't even sound as if you were begging. I don't think I could have said any of it better myself. That's for sure. Janik had an all-new reason to glower. I do not understand it, Jaskelin said. How could Kami have been wrong when he's been right about everything else? Are you sure you interpreted the dream correctly, Kier? Derry, who had suppressed his new anger at Kier, let it spill over. "'And once again, Kier, you—why can you not hold your tongue?' He shook his grooming brush at her. "'We do not want Gilvray and his entire army as our enemies. People don't take kindly to having their word doubted.' "'Most especially when they're lying,' Kier snapped, and Derry looked as though she'd slapped him in the face. "'I have not misinterpreted the dream. Kimmy is not wrong.' Kier said with finality, Major Gilvray is hiding something. Derry puffed out his exasperation. How can you say that, Kier? What reason can he possibly have for giving false information? All kinds of reasons. 
Honestly, don't you people have eyes? Couldn't you see the wheels turning in his head when I described the key? He was obviously wary, and that line about alchemy? Bet he felt pretty clever over that one. He's full of shit. Oh, man. Now what? Gilvray says he doesn't even have the key. Do you think Kier's right? Is he lying? We've been watching Pretend It's a City with Fran Lebowitz on Netflix. She mentioned something in last night's episode that I probably would have brought up here at some point, even if she hadn't, because this is my thing, too. She doesn't believe in guilty pleasures. And I don't either. I do not believe in guilty pleasures. I don't have any. And people seem to think of things like, um, I don't know, reading romance novels or eating a bit of chocolate every day or, I don't know, anything you enjoy that people might not think of as proper or sophisticated or, as Fran Lebowitz described it, things that aren't high art. Some people have even referred to reading fantasy as a guilty pleasure. Well, that's dumb. Like Fran, my thought is, why should I feel guilty about this thing I enjoy? Does my enjoyment of this thing hurt anybody else? If it did, then not only should I feel guilty, but I would be a pretty sick and twisted individual for taking any kind of pleasure out of a thing that hurts someone else. So, no, I like the books I like. I like the movies and the shows I like. It doesn't hurt anybody, so why should I feel guilty? I do not have guilty pleasures. I just have pleasures. And one of the things I take pleasure in is being with my family, even virtually. So thanks to Matt, to David and Heather, and to Maggie. I have unending appreciation to David and Sharon. Thanks to the original six, without whom none of this would be happening. And thanks very much to you. I hope you have done or intend to do some things today which give you pleasure. Now, go be fantastic.